1: Of FNO and SureTech, where we do another dive into the world of venture capital.
0: Yeah. VC,
1: also known as
0: VC. You're so clever.
1: Nothing gets past you. I might coin that. Do you have an initiative? Yeah, I think you'd be the first one. You think it'll stick? Well, seeing that it's never been used in the VC community. Well, hey, look at you. I already got you on it. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. Pretty good. I have Lee Boyd here with me. Yeah, hi, everybody. One of your co-hosts. That's me, the other one. Yeah. Would you stop eating? I can't stop eating. The audience does not want to hear you. We're at a conference, ladies and gentlemen. We're at a conference in Los Angeles, California. We're at the CoreLogic Interconnect Conference. Yeah. And they gave out uh, little bags of popcorn. Yeah. That are like really good. They're addictive. They're great. So you should save it. I can't stop eating them. But nobody wants to hear you eat it. My eating popcorn has nothing to do with our session today. Or our, or our episode. It, has, it might have something to do with our rating. So, it has nothing to Lee do with is here section. with me, though. You'll hear in a minute that he's not on the episode because I am not. Because he couldn't make it. But we have with us today somebody who is a big shot in the InsurTech VC world. One. Max Chi from Aqualine is with us. Yes. And for those of you who are keeping score at home, you know the name Max Chi and the things that he's accomplished. The companies that he's invested in and helped foster um, are uh, big names in the insure Tech world. And Max has been kind enough to be with us today and give us an interview. That's wonderful. This is one that I
0: really hated to miss. Sometimes the stars don't align and we can't be on. But Max, I apologize for not being here, but I am very excited to listen to this episode.
1: Well, we're going to hear a lot about how Max and his team at Aqualine approaches Mm. What they do, how they think about it, and how they go about not just having outcomes, but having uh, really successful ones. That's great. And so rather than sitting here listening to Lee eat popcorn. I'm sorry, everybody. So rude of me. We'll get to our interview with Max Chi, partner and head of Aqualine Technology Growth. Hey, everybody. We are here today with a very special guest, without Lee Boyd, who couldn't be with us today because of a Christmas commitment. We're just before Christmas of 2022, and we're here with a guy that we've been chasing after for a while because he is what I might consider a luminary in our crazy little business. We have Max Chi with us today. Max is a partner at Aqualine, and head of the Aqualine Technology Growth Fund. And with that, we say welcome, Max. Nice to have you with us. Thanks, Rob. Nice to be here. Where are you today? Where do you come to us from?
0: Uh, I hail from Brooklyn, New York. Cold, rainy, and miserable today.
1: <laughs> Is it? Yeah, I know. We have a bad, this bad storm works its way through the country. It's yours now, right? That's right. Uh-huh. That's right. I have a kid that lives in Brooklyn, so love Brooklyn. It's great to have you with us. We're excited to to, uh, explore a little more in the world of the VC today, what's going on, what's cooking, because I think a lot has changed and probably a lot hasn't changed. And we want to hear about that and and what's going on and kind of get a a reasonable measure of what's happening in the world of the VC today in in the insurtech space. And so let's start by asking you, Uh, to tell us a little bit about Aqualine and and what it is that you do there.
0: Sure. So I joined Aqualine in 2017 to launch the venture capital fund. Aqualine was originally founded in 2005 by Jeff Greenberg. And uh, it started off as a private equity fund investing across financial services. And as I said, in 2017, I joined uh, because they actually saw a need to have a dedicated fund focused on venture capital with a primary focus on insure tech uh, across the broader fintech ecosystem. And so I thought it was a really exciting op- opportunity to um, launch the fund and go after uh, you know, what was generally a, a emerging or, or new market segment called insure tech. So that's how I arrived there. My background is I've been in venture for um, I like to say twenty twenty plus years, but I actually started my career back in ninety nine. So, as we talk about this market, I've kind of seen a lot of different cycles actually. So, interested to see where this conversation goes.
1: Let's just jump in on that. Do you do you feel like we're in a new cycle now?
0: Uh, we, we definitely are. I think I think we saw a pretty big run up in in twenty twenty one, and we've seen the market really, you know, really really sell off. And uh, we're still kind of experiencing the effects of that here uh, in 2022. So um, I, I do think we're at a different time in the market cycle. And, you know, if you started this business after, call it 2011, 2012, in the last decade, you haven't really seen that a major down cycle like we're seeing right now. So uh, these are definitely interesting times to be a VC.
1: Right. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you was just that. If if you'd come in to to your business at around twenty ten or eleven up till today, it's pretty much been a party of growth and great results. But as we all know, they're they're not called business cycles for no reason at all.
0: That's right. There's no end of the business cycle or end of history or end of anything. <laughs> It sort of comes back around and around.
1: So uh-huh. Right. When there's an end of history, there will be none of us around here to talk about it. So let's talk about your particular role at Aqualine. What does it mean that you're the head of the Aqualine Technology Growth Fund? What's that encompass as far as your responsibilities and role?
0: I oversee the investment activities of the fund primarily. And that involves sort of the the management of the fund, uh, making investments, uh, overseeing the team, Reporting, fundraising, just all the all the aspects of running and managing a venture capital fund is a part of my job description.
1: Uh, and you've been in Insuretech since before it was called Insuretech.
0: I'm not sure when it was called Insuretech, and you know, I don't know if the, the e in Insuretech is going to survive. But I've always kept the e in there. I think your wife convinced me, me the that 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 e belongs there, and yeah. unless you're from England or something, and then you think that. Oh. <laughs> but to all my friends in the UK, hello. Uh, I'm not sure if I was there before InsurTech, but it was definitely there, just right at, right around the emergence of it. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I could probably count on one hand the number of insurance-related VC investments I had seen in my career. It was there were so few, so little um, over the sort of you know, preceding uh, time period. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think 2017 was a was kind of perhaps that, or maybe 2016 was when I think the the focus started to really turn
1: to insurance and technology. And so so you've had a front row seat, really, in insure tech. I mean, I would assume that um, a reasonable amount of your time is spent or your team's time is spent in just looking at company after company after company, pitch after pitch after pitch. Is that so? I mean, you've seen it kind of really grow and change in the last five or six years.
0: Uh, Absolutely. Uh, me and my team, we've probably seen, you know, over 500 companies at, at least, probably more, more closer than the 1,000 thousand level, I think, in terms of just insure tech businesses across North America, Europe, Asia as well. Uh, it's been pretty extraordinary how entrepreneurs have embraced the, the category of the space. So, uh. and probably about time too, when you think about the size of the market, but it was just something that, you know, most entrepreneurs started in definitely different sectors, even within financial services. They started with you know, payments and banking and lending and other areas before they arrived at insurance.
1: Insurance lasts because it's just so much more complicated, unusual, different?
0: I think so. Complicated, unusual, different, um, maybe less, less obvious as a, as a place to, to attack up front. At least from a consumer perspective, it's not something you you see all the time or, or think about all the time, whereas you know, a banking transaction or a payment transaction is sort of like a daily thing from an engagement standpoint. Mm-hmm. But I think once entrepreneurs started saying, once you saw so much of the world become transformed by software and by digitization, and then you had entrepreneurs say, wait a minute, I'm still buying car insurance the way I did, you know, 10 the way years my grandparents
1: did, right.
0: That's right. And the whole, the whole idea. And so I think that's what's still valley I said, wait a minute, this is a $7 trillion space. and We're still doing things in such an antiquated fashion. We, we've got to figure this out. And, and uh, you know, the money followed. The VC money followed. The entrepreneurs came in. And, you know, they had conquered parts of other parts of financial services. And they said, you know, why not insurance? Let's, let's figure this out. And I think they were probably undaunted and, uh, you know, by all the regulatory challenges and the nuances of the business. And, you know, I think if you're an entrepreneur, you have to be a little brave and a little stupid, right? You have to, and I mean that with all due respect, in the sense that you just have to kind of go for it and uh, you know try to prove the naysayers wrong about how how difficult the market is and try to attack it.
1: Do you also have to have good timing in this space? Like you said, you've seen 500, probably over, probably in reality over a thousand different companies, hundreds and hundreds of companies. Do you look at someone and say that's that's a fabulous idea but it's not time yet or 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 like that is timing is timing important
0: timing is is everything in venture capital you you could have a, a great idea but you know, the, the time just wasn't right i mean look at what you know grocery delivery right or right, you know, right. pets to, pets.com you know selling pet food online right Mm-hmm. Uh, just now look at delivery companies today, you know, 20 plus years later, the technology has to be right. The market has to be right. You know, where you are, the adoption curve. But I think it make be good, interesting that the takeaway I get from that is from a timing perspective is, you know, the technology has got to be there, right? The technology has got to make it easy enough to adopt or it's got to be you know faster, quicker, cheaper, et-, et cetera, for there to be adoption. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to have all these elements you know, correct for, for the timing to be there. Right. And uh, yeah, some, some ideas, you know, I don't, no one has a crystal ball. I think where we invest is sort of series A rounds. So we want to have some evidence of product market fit. Uh, Seed rounds as they're called, typically the entrepreneur is still trying to figure things out a little bit, right? Mm. Figuring out the product, how they get to market, how to design it. They may not have any sales yet um so could we say it's too early well it, it, it's hard to say i think when you're investing in the seed round you're by definition it's too early because they haven't sold anything yet uh-huh. but uh yeah timing plays an important role in whether these things will scale and be really successful absolutely
1: uh-huh. I, Uh huh. i looked over the investments that you guys are currently in today and looked for you know themes that you know ran through them it seemed like it seemed to me like data was um, still a, a, a big emphasis for you. Is, is that correct?
0: When I started at Aquiline, and when I started sort of studying the market a little bit, we probably you know scanned through the first couple hundred companies or 100 companies in Suretech. And you, you see the patterns start to emerge. Um, and one of the big ones was data, data analytics. So if you believe, as Mark Adreessen said, um, more than a decade ago now that software is in the world, you know, the world will become increasingly digitized, increasingly measured. There will be a huge tsunami of structured and unstructured data, uh, and that will create new opportunities for insurance carriers, underwriting claims, you know, all across the value chain of, of you know, leveraging you know new data and alternative data. Um, and so, we're still seeing that five years later. That that's been one of the big themes that, that we've had.
1: You guys are in um, some companies that we've had on the podcast really interesting companies like fairmatic. Yes. Uh, we're huge. Jonathan Matus fans, right? We had him on. Is that how you
0: you pronounce the last name? I didn't know that.
1: Matus. Yeah. I I believe so.
0: That's good. I keep calling him Mattis. I feel bad now. Sorry, Jonathan. You're listening.
1: I know that, um, his first name is not pronounced Jonathan, right? Jonathan. Jonathan. And, uh, uh, We had him on and it was like, I mean, he literally blew our minds. He's brilliant, right? And he was running this ZenDrive thing, but really working on Fairmatic at at the same time. And uh, that's a really, talk about data, talk about mountains and mountains of data. Uh, That's right. Fairmatic is really, what what intrigued you about Fairmatic?
0: Well, I think the fact that, Coming out of Zen Drive, they had you know over five billion miles driven of data and behaviors over you know what makes a safe driver, what what makes a risky driver, and our view was that the combination of, of that data and how they could apply it in commercial auto, in their case, like commercial auto, uh, would be pretty impactful on loss ratios uh, and on driver selection, and uh, business selection. So we saw you know a very big space also with secular tailwinds when you think about the proliferation and growth of delivery drivers, delivery vehicles, and, and last mile logistics. Um, so you had that going for you. You had this sort of new trove of data that could be very impactful in terms of loss ratios, risk selection, pricing. You had a really strong entrepreneur in, in Jonathan who built a great team around him um and also the market itself i think was ready for something where you know they couldn't sustain the historical loss ratios you, you needed to do a better job of you know of underwriting the sector so mm-hmm. um, there were a lot of good trends both you know technology as well as what was happening in the market that uh, made this an exciting proposition so uh we uh co-led the series a
1: you mentioned you know, the, the strength of the entrepreneur, I've heard you speak before about the team and the, and how important the team is. You know, I'm sure that you've been asked the question when you look at a new opportunity, you know, what, what do you focus in on? And team is a, a very typical answer. Um, but I heard you say about the team that there has to be a, you know, the leader, the strong entrepreneur, the visionary, a strong technologist, right but now and this is a newer answer in the last few years there has to be deep insurance uh know-how and and ability Correct. Do, you, do you see that as something that has evolved with time with insurtech It seems to me that when we were early in our podcast we would talk to people who didn't have an insurance person on on the team really maybe advisors but not. Not somebody on it today. It seems right. like that's a critical piece.
0: You know, when when VCs or technologists go to go to look at different sectors of the economy that they want to, you know, quote unquote, disrupt. They want to see things differently, right? They they want to reimagine the market. Like, let's reimagine how we do this process, or how we sell this insurance, or how we underwrite. And when you do that, that's great because you're not bound to the old ways of thinking. Um, but what, what what you found in insurance and insure tech was you lose so much domain expertise if you don't have that person that insurance veteran who really understands how the industry works because it you you can't sort of there's no such thing as disrupting insurance you, you just can't it's just too big like disrupting Earth you know what <laughs> does that even mean uh, you, you know you, you can disrupt discrete elements of uh-huh. the insurance process. But you can't disrupt insurance. And so I think what 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 you learned over the last few years is that these entrepreneurs, if you're going to think to yourself, I'm going to reinvent insurance, and I don't need anyone in insurance to tell me how to do it because they're kind of the old way of thinking and you know, we're the new way. I think you're just gonna burn through a lot of cycles, you're gonna make a lot of mistakes, and then you're gonna arrive at a place that took you much longer than if you had someone who's, you know smart, resourceful, practical, within the insurance industry, you know, with a network and the understanding of how things actually get done. Mm-hmm. Now, the trade-up is maybe you don't have this sort of big bang moment, right? And so it's always a balance between sort of entrenched thinking and this is the way it's always been done, you'll never change it to, you know, we really need to reinvent the industry or reinvent, you know, so-and-so and, and, and try to drive it forward. Uh, but I think in, if you think about insure tech and the evolution, I think it's, it's leaning more and more towards having that, that industry expertise up front.
1: It, it seems to me like, uh, and I'm interested in your take on this, that many insure techs are now trying to solve, take a narrower bite out of, out of the value chain as opposed to solving the whole how do I disrupt insurance question. That's correct. That's correct.
0: And, and we're seeing that in, in like the companies we're, we're looking at. I think when you start off, it's like, you know, healthy on WebMD. I don't know if you remember that. It's a very yeah. old reference, mm-hmm. but um, there was a book written called like, you know, the new, new thing about healthcare. And, you know, the, the protagonist wrote in a napkin, like, you know, healthcare doctors, patients, a big circle. And then like, a trillion dollars. And that was his vision. <laughs> this is a big market. We're going to disrupt it. And, uh, you know, insurance, seven trillion dollars. But I think once you get, get into the industry and you really understand how it works and how discrete a lot of that, a lot of the wave that, that's sort of the, the premium or the size of the industry is cut up, you just get more and more real about what you can or, or cannot do. I think, in a way, the first wave of InsureTech was exciting because you You did create these big bang kind of companies that really tried to disrupt these huge, big kind of markets, and they still may be successful. Um, But I think when you know when you take a more subtler look at at some of the discrete problems, I think that's kind of where we are now in terms of of uh, techs because they also recognize how hard it is to just go compete against the incumbents in these
1: really right. An example, not that they're a new company at all, is Cape Analytics who right. is is in your portfolio they're not out to change the entire insurance industry although Ryan might you know argue with me about that but they're they're solving a specific problem right, right. it's it's a larger problem but it's still a specific problem within the whole umbrella they're not trying to That's restructure it. the the umbrella um so you know that makes me think of MGAs and I know that you guys have some MGAs in your portfolio and some of the earlier ones in the wild days, they've made a lot of big headlines, but today it seems like they're struggling a little more. What's your insight there?
0: We think a lot about that and about the MGA business model and what's working and what's not working. And, um, you know, I think I go back to the example of Fairmatic, which we talked about earlier, which is an MGA that, that we invested in. And you look at the ingredients for success so I think perhaps the many MGAs who, who started maybe didn't have as much of, an, of a competitive advantage or, or an edge mm-hmm. that they thought, you know, whether it was in distribution or underwriting. So and in some cases, I think in the race to grow quickly, they maybe, you know, overlooked some of the challenges around um, mm-hmm. underwriting and losses and, and, and maybe, uh, you know, learn the hard way on that as well. And, and then also the, you know, the reinsurance capital issue and, and making sure you have enough capital to grow to your business. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the things that I think everyone kind of learned the hard way. But the, the fundamental premise of, of can technology really drive better outcomes for you and create new products? I think you still I still believe that. And I think because of that, I think they will all be very interesting and novel MGAs that come out that wouldn't have existed were it not for the new technologies that are out there and what new technologies can bring. So a good example is parametric. So it's a very small market today, but um, we think it actually could go pretty quickly because it can solve new problems in new ways that previously couldn't be solved before. So so MGAs are a good proxy for in the industry for sort of new product innovation, that's how new products really get pushed out through these MGA's. So, mm-hmm. so I think we're kind of you know medium long term bullish, but I think we're tempered by the fact that you know if you talk to my colleague Jason Rotman, who is a president of uh, you know distinguished right now an, an MGA, you know you know we'll have all these debates because he comes from the old school. Uh, and I sort of come from the, the new school and, and the question is, you know, what are these things, how will these things ultimately be valued? And I think we, we debate that all the time. And to, to me, if, if they're growing quickly with the right margins because of technology, then I think they will be more valuable. I think they, they merit sort of venture capital money. And that's, that's my fundamental assumption for the, mm-hmm. for the space.
1: So Interesting. Let's switch gears for a minute and talk about 2022. We're at the end of the year. I think it's probably a year that a lot of people uh, in, in the world of uh, finance are happy to see go. Share with us some insights that have come to light in 2022. Um, we talked earlier that, I mean, you know, we went through many, many years of a, a very go-go period of time. Where there was an abundance of uh, of uh, venture capital and capital available to lots of entrepreneurs, and and things are changing. Share with us, share with us from your seat some of the lessons from twenty twenty
0: two. You know, lessons learned are also sort of hindsight's being twenty twenty, and I think the easy to say now, but the valuations were unsustainable. So I think you had this this place in the market where there was a lot of capital chasing investments in fast growing companies and a lot of discipline on valuations were sort of thrown out the window and yeah, the valuation you would give on a company was based on the last valuation of the company that just got that valuation, and it just became this sort of up and up and up and up, right? Without mm-hmm. any sort of you know thought for what could happen if the valuations turned or if, or if the cycle turned. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, the the way the incentive structure works in, in, in venture, you know, Bill Gurley writes a lot about this. He's a you know a great thought leader in the space, a great venture capitalist would you know would tell you that you know it's it's so driven towards finding that, that deal that, you know, a lot of people I think lost a lot of discipline in terms of their, the way they thought about investing and, and kind of what valuations they would pay for, uh, you know, for those opportunities. So mm-hmm. I think it taught us that, you know, cycles do matter that these things, you know, do turn, it's obviously hard to, uh, to time it. You know, we learned that uh, these businesses don't go up, up and to the right and, you know, venture capital can be a, you know, pretty, pretty tough
1: business. Has this year or the the lessons, and they're not they're not new lessons. Like you're saying, I mean, um, they're they're just they're this is the cycle. It's not a new cycle, um, but is it is it changing the landscape? Is the impact on the landscape changing? Ellen Carney from Forrester recently wrote an article uh, where she said 25 percent of all techs uh, will exit this year for either acquisition or just running out of runway as a result of the economics that we're in. Do you agree with that? And, and is that is that a landscape change that we'll be looking forward to in years to come?
0: I don't believe that's the case because the the math wouldn't support one quarter of all this is going, you know, flaming out. I don't think that even happened during... The dot com crash. Uh, we we do have to remember, though, that eighty percent of venture businesses aren't expected to survive or to generate the returns from the investor that they expect. So, by definition, these are very high risk business propositions, and you know you're proverbially swinging from the fences. So, you're you're going to expect attrition. You know, it's kind of ironic when you think about. I'm not sure if ironic is the right word, but you think about the insurance industry and you have a New York life that's been around for like 150 years or right. Northwestern Mutual, et cetera. Right. Um, you know, these is insured, not, not all insurtechs are expected to survive and you know, no, no one should expect that. So uh, it, it sounds shocking to think, oh my goodness, one fourth of all these companies will fail. But actually that's if only one quarter of the companies failed over the next five years. That's actually that's actually a pretty good batting average.
1: Has your thesis changed at all as a result of the change in macroeconomic environment? The thesis around what we
0: invest in or what we want to invest in?
1: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, I think we want to be a partner to the insurance industry. And at Aquiline, we have a lot of you know, terrific you know, partners and investors. And what we're trying to do consistently is invest in companies along the insurance value chain. That drives greater efficiencies, productivity, cost savings. You know whether it's through you know better distribution, better underwriting, claims, etc. So you know I think these these challenges sort of survive any cycle. So and technology by definition is something that um, you know will survive every cycle because technology is just sort of what's new. Right, like mm-hmm. Ford was a technology company, right? Um, right. At some some point in time, IBM right. was a technology company. Right. Maybe new was, tech, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. new tech. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I think there'll always be the the need for technology enabling productivity and innovation in any mm-hmm. industry, and especially mm-hmm. in insurance. But I think when we look at new investments, we want to make sure that. It has a strong ROI, that it has some resilience so that they have the capital um, and the value proposition to survive um, yeah, a down cycle, if you will. But fundamentally, the idea that we're investing in technology companies that can drive secular change in an industry um, should be able to sort of transcend the ups and downs of a cycle. Mm-hmm. So that's really, you know, theoretically how we how we think about our investments, and if we're investing companies that drive real value to the end customer, mm-hmm. then arguably we should be okay. We just have to be careful because I think in some markets like this one, that end customer is you know less likely or is more cautious around trying out new technologies, or, or you know they may not have the, the same kind of budget that they did a year ago to try new technologies.
1: Do you feel that it, that you're at a little bit of an advantage in the insurance market because it is mm-hmm. kind of by its nature a little more stable? It's not, you know, all over the place. There's not wide swings. Uh, you know, it's, it's mandated in so many ways and in so many arenas that it, and it's stable and constant and, and the product is basically always similar. Is that an advantage? That's a that's a really
0: interesting question. I, I think because there's not as much price competition and pricing leverage because the, the product is fairly commoditized. Mm-hmm. Not not everywhere, but but fairly, um you maybe have less leeway to move about um and to compete as a competitor. Now, as an enabler, like if you're selling enabling technology then it's almost a good thing in the sense that, you know, I'm, you know, if I were selling to the crypto industry, (laughs) you know, I wouldn't be feeling really good about myself right now or about the fact that I could sell to anyone who's still going to be (laughs) around. Right. Right. I know selling to an insurance company, there's a very long sales cycle and uh, decisions can get stretched out. But at the end of the day, we know these companies make great long-term partners that they'll be around for a very long time um, and there's needs that they'll continue to need to be you know serviced and new products they'll need to, to purchase to, to you know to uh, to mm-hmm. deliver their service so so there's definitely some trade-offs um, in the space but I think once you build a good customer relationship with a good product I think that long-term relationship is very valuable so it, I think it's I think it, it, it's better for the investor of enabling technologies, in the longer term, perhaps, uh, and it's tougher to sort of compete head to head in some cases then, as a result.
1: So what what's your opinion of, of, of this industry that we're in? Um, you weren't always in it. You found yourself in the insurance world. I'm sure you're comfortable in it today. What What are some thoughts on the on, on the industry that insuretech is a part of?
0: Yeah, well, I, I like it. I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's very sort of boils down to a lot of math right? You're pricing risk, you're transferring risk, and you're trying to create these solutions that will, you know, ultimately sort of, I mean, not, not to sound too grandiose, but, you know, help society move forward. And, you know, I was talking to the head of innovation at, at Travelers about this. You know, we're looking at things like, you know, carbon insurance and carbon technologies. And, you know, we all, you know, have this sort of more of a collective desire to sort of reduce our carbon footprint to reduce the impacts of global warming and climate change. So insurance has an interesting role to, role to play there. So I, I think in, in insurance, it's, it's a slow moving industry, but it's also really, really fundamental. It's sort of very data driven and math based, which I like, it's very kind of complicated and, and convoluted, mm-hmm. um, and really complex, um, uh, business to kind of understand. So, Um, firstly, I like all those things about, about the business. And I think it's, it's sort of fun to try to really, you know, figure it out and be successful at it. But maybe I should be selling tokens on um, or something.
1: (laughs) It's a tough industry to figure out. I mean, in the early days we started this podcast because we're playing around trying to figure out where where, we work in the, in the claims end of, of the equation. And we're trying to figure out what technologies we're going to win. Uh, and it's hard to figure that out sometimes the obvious ones don't make it you know you you mentioned swinging for the fences in this business i mean do you have do you have ones that come along that maybe they're not they're not going to change the world but i mean maybe they're a single or a double but not a home run do you pass on those cuz you can only ever see them being a double or are they intriguing also i think it's how you define that sort of what is a double or a single
0: mean mean to you, right? Because the, the market is, it, it sort of depends on the company you're investing in, what stage you're investing in, what problems you're solving. And just from a very practical matter, when we look at investing in a business, we say to ourselves, well, who's going to buy this business from us in three to five years? Obviously we need an exit. Uh We don't hold our businesses forever. We have a finite life to our investments. So we do think a lot about would a double or triple, or if the business doubles in size, will we get a good return for investors if we do that? And oftentimes the case can be yes. If the problem we're solving is very, you know, is, is big enough. Or maybe it's a very niche problem in a very big market. So, mm-hmm. so I, th- I I think it's okay to not necessarily play the power law of venture capital in certain circumstances where you know you're you've got experts solving a hard problem in a well-defined market that they can go after and it's well-sized and you can execute on it um, and then you know eventually grow the business and sell it to the, that next person. So. You know it's more of a kind of a growth me- mentality than a venture mentality, but I think that's perfectly fine and kind of works well in insurance where if you're selling into the insurance industry again, it's long-term relationships. These are annuity type kind of
1: relationships. they, they, they are indeed and that's why we love it. Uh, yeah yeah uh, uh, the relationships of my my son is in the is in the technology world and it, uh, his biggest customer one month might not be his customer next month. And, uh, right. and that n- almost never happens in our business, in the, in the, in the insurance business, uh, certainly without notice, almost never. And so, right. uh, th- kind of a different set of rules. I, I just want to touch on a couple more questions for you about Max G the guy. <laughs> um, so I read that you were involved with Spotify, Pinterest, LegalZoom, is is that all correct? That that's correct. We were uh, we my prior venture firm. We had made investments in in those businesses, among others. Is that where you learn your most lessons on the big wins like that? I mean, those must have been, or I mean, those are legendary uh, success stories.
0: I think you learn from from every deal and every investment you make, and I, I think the ones you're most proud of are the ones that you kind of fought your investment committee through and really had, you know, personal conviction on, on what was mm-hmm. going to happen. You know, I, I'm proud of all, all my investments, but, but the, you know, the ones that do well, you're obviously, especially proud of, I think the ones you learn the most from actually, quite frankly, are your failures, mm-hmm. um, the ones you don't, but uh, you know, it, it's just, it's really amazing though, to see companies scale and grow and really sort of, you know, really become successful. It's, it's, it's really gratifying
1: to see that happen. You must develop a gut for this, right? I mean, like you said, you've been at this for, you know, for 20 plus years. It's more than just the numbers. You have to have a sense more than the facts and figures. Yeah. yeah you call
0: it pattern recognition, like John Doerr, you know, the legendary founder of, of um, you know, KKR who invested in Amazon, for example, he said, you know, to be a venture capital it takes about $100 million, right? You have to apprentice yourself and make $100 million worth of investments before you can really call yourself or have the experience to be a VC. In, in some ways, I believe that. Obviously, you can get lucky, right? And be at the right place at the right time, like, like we talked about. But I think to be consistently good, I think you do have to have a lot of pattern recognition. Um, you know, I think it's funny Google trying to like sort of turn venture into like an AI decision-making tool to make investments, right? I mean, uh-huh. you can't do that in the public markets. So what makes you think you can actually do that in the private markets, which is like much, much harder with a lot more human variables that, you know, machines just will, you know, make it really difficult to understand. So that's why I like venture capital. There's, there's a lot more, there's a lot of art and science to your point. There's a lot of, you know, trusting your gut Trusting your instinct, looking at different patterns, having a point of view, and you know having conviction around you know doing the work. So, yeah, it's it's uh, it's been a fun uh, fun ride. Where
1: do you get your fun in in your work?
0: What's the funnest part? I really think it's it's fun because you, you you're really learning about these new businesses. You're learning, you know, you're meeting these exciting management teams and entrepreneurs who have these like really. Exciting visions, and you're always learning about a new sector or a new space. So, like I said, recently we've been spending a lot of time around, you know, carbon, carbon accounting, and carbon offsets, and you know that whole kind of world around emissions and and uh, climate change, et cetera. And you know, you're doing that one one day, and then you know maybe next week we're back to looking at blockchain again or something else. So, you know, the the fun part of my job that keeps it really light and refreshing is great ideas great entrepreneurs and you know seeing that growth and you know, no day being the same because the companies we're looking at today could be very different from the companies we look at you know a year from now so i think there's always a sort of pipeline of interesting innovation that that comes down and, and that's never boring that's always really interesting to me
1: what do, what does insure tech 2.0 mean to you
0: well i think the idea is you know there's a first wave and a second wave and you know, we, there are a lot of mistakes and successes in the first wave and you've taken that and you've kind of, you know, you've tooled it, you've redeveloped it and you've turned it into like, you know, part two or the next chapter of, of the journey. So I think that's what, you know, really, really that means for me and for InsurTech 2.0, I think it's the idea that, you know, we've learned a lot, um, made a few mistakes along the way, had a few successes, as you know, and, um, we're going to iterate on that and, you know, build a better
1: sort of mousetrap for, uh, for the insurtech businesses that come out of this, you know, this new wave. What are your thoughts on cyber? Because there's kind of two parts to this. There's the selling of cyber insurance or the provision of cyber insurance. And there's all, all the infrastructure around it. Give us your thoughts there. I, I think cyber is a really important area for insurance. I think it, it
0: can't be ignored. It's a big area of risk that needs to be insured. And I think I, it can be insured. So I'm not of the of the camp of this is a systematic risk and we have to avoid it at all costs as, as an insurer. I, I think it's a really important category and it's one that you can write insurance for and write it profitably. So I, I kind of have a, a dip, maybe a different view in terms of, you know not only the, the importance of it, but actually, you know, does it work as a category within insurance? I certainly am, and I'm a believer that it, it is an important category and that it will work over time.
1: You guys have investment in the cyber area. Uh, that's right. We're investors in Corvus. and they're they're an MGA, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, so they're selling the product, mm-hmm. the insurance product. That's right. I just find cyber to be yeah. fascinating and troubling. All at the same time, why, why do you find it troubling? Uh, it's a really tough bet. I guess you can write to the bet you can write policies around the areas of most extreme vulnerability, but the vulnerability in cyber just seems larger than what we can even get our arms around, and that that just seems daunting to me
0: you know I, I think that it depends on what you're trying to prevent, right because I think with a lot of risk prevention, risk management, and monitoring, I think a lot of cyber attacks can be mitigated. And, and when we talk about MGAs and what MGAs enable, which is new product innovation, a lot of the MGAs in cyber, not just Corvus, but all of their you know, contemporaries and peers, you know, they have really good platforms for underwriting. They have really good platforms for monitoring. Um, They really understand the emerging and evolving risks that are there. Um, And they can proactively work with their um, business customers to, you know, minimize the potential threat or attack threshold. So, um, you know, when you think about it, the abstract, it is very, very scary. But I, I think that it can be sort of managed and mitigated and hence. You know, I, think, I think it can be and, and it's proven
1: to be an insurable asset class. We can't have an episode like this without talking about COVID. It's funny, that's all we used to talk about. I mean, we have many, many, many podcasts where, many episodes where we talk about COVID a lot. We, we don't talk about it anymore uh, as much, which is nice, which is uh, for those of uh, for all of us who went through it, it's nice to feel like we're on the other side of it. Has that had an impact on you guys on a long-term basis? I mean, other than the fact that you're sitting, that you work more from home, I mean, did it impact venture capital? Did it impact venture capital for InsurTech? Well, I think it did. I don't think it maybe not unique to insurance, but it really
0: changed the way technology functioned within an organization and how you used it. And it also sort of exposed some of the areas of technology where things were just still really antiquated like i heard that you know one carrier in all of covid the only team that had to go back in the office was a team that had to cut the checks out you know to to pay out claims you know to their customers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you're thinking to yourself it's 2022 why am i still cutting checks and sending it out in the mail and, and and so I think there I think it really helped to um, accelerate and, and force the digital conversion um, in a lot of kind of workflows and work streams and uh, you know really emphasize the importance of technology investing so um, I, I think for the insurance space and for insure techs, it maybe sort of you know help to Crystallized the importance of, of, of digital transformation, you know, in a world where it was much harder to be, you know, face to face with your colleague or, or with a customer. So at the end of the day, it was probably from a business process and digital standpoint, it was probably a, a turning point. Although now we know the consequences of, of COVID and the Fed actions and inflation has caused sort of a bit of a mean reversion. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think some of the things will, will still endure, like the fact that we'll all be in zoom and we'll all have a kind of a hybrid workplace and, you know, there'll be the requirement for more, you know, digital tools, uh, Mm -hmm. necessary.
1: We work almost exclusively with carriers and like many large or very, very large organizations, they're trying to get back to the office. It continues to be a struggle. I think that the, the genie is out of the bottle as far as moving the workforce back into the office Monday to Friday, 8 to 5.
0: I mean, can you imagine if you started your career, people started their career now, how lucky they are not to have to
1: commute. five <laughs> a week. Isn't that amazing? I mean, b- b- both of us, right? Both of us wouldn't be where we are right now. Exactly. If, if it wasn't for COVID. And yeah. and now, now it's an accepted thing. But it, it does. And from our perspective as a service provider, we absolutely have seen how... Ah, uh, COVID helped foster adoption, foster the search for products that can that can help, uh, in in all different kinds of places in the in the in the value chain, and yeah. um, I think that in the, for the insure tech world, it was a little bit of a gift. It was helpful.
0: Yeah, well, for the insurance world, I guess the question is, will they ever go back to the suit and tie? You know, and then we all sort of, you know business dress, business attire,
1: uh-huh.
0: you know, because insurance is one of the last bastions of, you know, you go to
1: see where those really nice ties and stuff. and They look uh-huh. really put together. From a product standpoint and without giving anything away mm-hmm. or even mentioning names, there must be areas or categories where you think if, as you look out, oh, out over the next five or 10 years mm-hmm. that are, that are very exciting. Can you share any of those? I think I, I think I alluded to some
0: already, but you know I think everything to do with the sort of carbon economy and the E of ESG I think is really interesting. Dotted line to that uh, parametric is interesting. You know what other emergent risks will come out that you know, insurance can solve or, or can tackle. So you know it's hard hard to say. I think you know a year from now we would probably be talking about completely different. You know problems to, to solve and, and to, to tackle. Mm -hmm. So, um, but those ones, ones are, are top of mind. I think, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of investment in alternative distribution, right? We, I know a lot of your guests have talked about embedded insurance and embedded distribution, but the idea of that, um, you know, affinity led type distribution, uh, and then the, and, you know, how agents use technology as well is, um, you know, a lot of big investments there. You never talk about disintermediating the agent anymore. It's really about empowering the agent with technology. So um, I think those are some of the enduring themes that, that we'll talk about. But, uh, you know, near, near term, I see parametric and carbon
1: as pretty interesting areas right now for that we're kind of exploring and investigating. Right. Yeah, it's interesting on the agent front. Years ago when we started the podcast, people were after the agent. Now they're, now they want to partner with the agent and take care of the agent. I I guess so. I'm I'm like, if I were a small business
0: owner, I would still need to talk to someone as much as, you know, you're a millennial or a Gen Z and you'd rather just look at a TikTok Uh video to get your advice, you know, or, you know, read a Yelp review if you're a a millennial, Mm -hmm. you know, you still got to talk to these people. Yeah. Um, You know, it's not like you can like automate a legal contract, you know, Mm -hmm. No. There's some similarity. There's, there's more. The analogy of of a, of a, of a, of a legal, you know, talking to your lawyer or your accountant or your insurance broker. I think it falls more in that kind of realm of expertise in some, mm-hmm. some, in some respects, which makes it
1: harder to commoditize. Your, your doctor, your lawyer, your insurance agent, and your venture capitalist. Yeah. Those are all the people that. Will never be
0: disintermediated. Never, never. You'll always (laughs) need us.
1: Plastics. And and with plastics. And and crypto. And crypto. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Long Bitcoin. I'm just kidding. Just you. Just (laughs) don't want to count how much is there today. Listen, what a what a pleasure to have you. Thank you. And for those of you who've listened, we've uh, withstood all kinds of technology challenges to make it to. To, through another um, outstanding visit with uh, somebody who's really important in our industry who you might not know and you might not ever uh, have an opportunity to, to paths to across, but max is somebody who's literally making a difference every day by working with these companies and fostering them into the value chain and so on behalf of the industry thanks and on behalf of our crazy little podcast thanks we appreciate having you Well, thank you very much, Rob. Really appreciate it. And happy holidays. Oh, yeah. Same to you. Big thanks to Max Chi and the team at Aqualine for helping us to have Max on and continue our conversations with uh, different people in the VC community. Very interesting. And we really appreciate it. Really appreciate all you who listen to our podcasts and uh, by extension, participate in them. So thank you. Thank you to Lee Boyd for absolutely nothing in not being here today to help, even though truth be told, he's sitting next to me right now. And I'll say until next time, goodbye, everybody.